Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, let's do it. It's another Studcast. David Summers here with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. It's the only podcast on the planet documenting the real story of professional wrestling. It's 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the Stud. Please welcome the originator of the Studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. As we step back into the ring and back into time with our man, the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, my man, Ron? Oh, man. Glad to be with you, man. Uh, doing good today. Beautiful day. Everything is going great. And uh, just excited, man. Uh, looking over things and going through my my books and my records and uh, uh, my television uh, formats. And wow, I just I get more excited every time I do one of these because it just seems like they're just getting better. I can't imagine, uh, you know, uh, I guess I can't imagine exactly uh, why we were drawing the kind of crowds we were back in 1977. Right. Uh, just uh, looking at all this, uh, all these uh, cards and uh, the TV formats is just really, uh, it really, it really makes me see that we, we had a reason that we were doing good business. Oh, absolutely. No doubt about it. Hey, everybody remember, as we get started on another great story, tnstud.com, tnstud.com, the home to the stud store. It's all there. Anything you're looking for, you'll find it at the stud store. There's a huge collection of photos under the gallery. There's videos, and then there's every stud cast and super stud cast, all at tnstud.com. Hey, I'm ready to go. Where are we riding today, Ron? Well, on today's training, uh, it's going to be based on the, this is a really an odd subject, you know, and I, and I got off on this one and the concept of it. We're going to really kind of do an, a, an anatomy of an angle today. And we've got a little bit of a Booker's Dilemma that fits in with this angle that we're going to be talking about. Uh, we're also going to obviously get in the cage. We mentioned that last week and you didn't like the idea much of getting in the cage, but right. <laughs> we are going to get in that cage today with uh, Mongolian Stomper and Ronnie Garvin on Sunday, March the 12th in the Coliseum. And uh, we'll discuss the TV that promotes the card that we'll talk about today. We'll get the results of those matches on this March the 12th, 77 day. And we'll also get the attendance. And the learning tree is a one I really look forward to. The gentleman asked, and it's actually not the gentleman, it's a podcast. A fellow podcast is asking me a question about how I recall all these 45-year-old shows in such detail. 
I'm yeah. looking forward to answering that one. Well, it obviously sounds like another great one. I can't wait to get to that cage match. I'll stay on the outside, thank you. But listen, I'm pretty curious, too. How do you remember in such detail all of these incredible things that happened so long ago? And I guess that's part of the secret of why you are the storyteller. Well, we're going to find out. I look forward to it because, uh, you know, there's several reasons for it, as a matter of fact. So uh, what's your horse's name today, Dave? I've got a good one. My horse, Waffle House, is raring to go. So are we riding into today's training first? Uh, well, yeah, we are. But, uh, whoa, just uh, I got to back. Your horse's name is Waffle House. Now, you know, Dave, uh, that instantly makes me think of Andre the Giant, you know, <laughs> and, and my experience with Waffle House and Andre the Giant. Yeah. You know, and and, uh, and, and first thing I got to say is I hope your horse ain't an Andre-sized horse. He is pretty big, and he's a little, maybe a little, little slow. And listen, uh, I remember the story that you told on a, a super studcast, and I think it was the very first one ever about your trip to Waffle House with Andre the Giant, which was absolutely amazing. But anyway, hey, look, I got a, I got a great horse. I'm ready to ride. Well, well, you know, I hope he, I hope he's not uh, any slower than usual, you know, and I understand with a. With a name like Waffle House, he's probably not too fast. So uh, we're going to take off, my man. Either way, we're going to give him the spurs, and we're going to get right into this yeah. ride. Eventually, he will be scattered, smothered, covered. And oh boy! So anyway, we're we're we're, we're good, Ron. <laughs> cool, man. All right, so let's jump right into today's training, man. Uh, and it's definitely a day. This one for a Booker's hat, that's for sure. And the Booker's, uh, you know, they maybe the most difficult and yet fascinating job in the wrestling business, period. They may have well been the most important people in any wrestling company was your booker. And uh, they may be more than anyone in the sport experienced the old thing that it used to say on uh, on Saturday <laughs> on the world of sports. Uh, they, they've experienced the thrill of victory, every booker, and they've also suffered the agony of defeat, man. So, you know, it's a it's a tough job. So as the booker in 1977 for Southeastern and also the promoter and the owner, I was in a position to experience either the thrill of success or the potential failure. And I kind of got it shoved right in my face when Ronnie Garvin came to me right out of the blue and he turned my world upside down in 1977. And that's where we're going to start today with this unique training experience as a booker. And we're going to take this ride. And by doing so, we're going to discover not only the anatomy of an angle, but we're going to kind of get a feel for the anatomy of a booker. So one of my top heels comes to me and he tells me he has a problem in his home country of Canada and he's going to need to go there very soon. He doesn't know whether he will ever come back or not. <laughs> so, wow, that's a, that's a great problem for a booker to have. Really? So, wow. So bookers, you know, have to have a pretty quick mind and they better have a strong heart to deal with these types of situations. So this one was particularly difficult because the wrestler didn't know whether he was coming back or not. I mean, it automatically required me to try to create an angle for his sudden disappearance that worked kind of whether he came back or not. He's really testing me, uh, Garvin, at this point. So where do you start as a booker for something like this? Um, so. 
Yeah, I think you go back to the beginning, to the day that that particular wrestler started in your company, and you kind of see the history of how you built him and where he's at at that point and that time frame when he comes to you with a problem like this. So that's what we're going to do today in this very unusual training program here in today's training. So Ronnie Garvin was the wrestler that needed to go home. He arrived in Southeastern on September 24th, 1976. He and I went back a whole long way, Ronnie Garvin and I. Uh, we had had my first program with him, my first angle with him, my first heated exchange as a baby face against a legit heel. And uh, it all took place in Fort Myers, Florida, back in the winter of 1971. I'd just gone to Florida in the fall of 70. And early in 71, they threw me and Ronnie in Fort Myers because we weren't good enough to wrestle in Tampa, to be quite honest with you. Uh-oh. But they at least gave me an opportunity to work on top and work angles and work a little program with Ronnie Garvin. So I therefore knew when I brought Ronnie Garvin into Southeastern in September of 1976 that he could do it. He was a great worker. And as a booker, I felt totally confident that he could be a major heel in Southeastern. So I decided to totally push him. You know, I gave him the finishing move, the, the same one that he used when I met him in 1971, the jump off the top rope into your throat. And he was going to become famous for that in Southeastern. He wanted to keep that same move. I was happy with it. So the first major angle I worked with him as Southeastern Booker happened just three weeks later. After he arrives on the 24th of September, 1976, three shows later, he's going to jump off the top rope on me in the Terry Funk World Championship match. So <laughs> right away, Ronnie Garvin was off and running. I established him pretty quickly. I paired him the last week of October of 1976 with somebody that could talk for him because he didn't want to talk for himself. He wasn't used to it. So I paired him with Big Bad John. So Rob and I, we started working together toward the end of 76 on the book. And uh, we convinced Ronnie that he could do his own talking. So by January 23 of 1977, Big Bad John was gone from Southeastern. And Garvin had no problem, man, taking over his own position, doing interviews. And for the first time in his career, he was handling everything that a great heel had to be able to do to work on top. He was able to not only work in the ring, but he was able to to get the job done on the mic. So on February 13, 1977, Ronnie Garvin's in the Cadillac final. And we worked an angle in that match that uh, had never been done to my knowledge, in an automobile tournament anywhere in the country. We had the heel that lost to go tear the car up (laughs) the same day. So it was probably one of the best angles to get heat that maybe was ever done, you know. And uh, he was at that point in Southeastern, probably the hottest heel in the history, not just of Southeastern, but of that part of the country. So on the next day, after this, this car tournament, And after him damaging the Cadillac on Monday, February 14th, 1977, Ronnie Garvin notifies me and my brother that he had to go home to Montreal, Canada, that he had a real problem there and that he might be there for a long time. In fact, he might not ever be coming back. So that was the moment, you know, all bookers fear. 
a good booker. He's built a great hill for himself. He's involved him in a whole lot of angles. And then suddenly, either through injury or unhappiness or no fault of his or no fault of the, the wrestler, that guy's got to up and leave. And in this case, that leaving had to happen in just five weeks. So he kind of puts us in a real bind. He's on top. We're pushing him. We're we're expecting to have him there. And he says, guys, I'm sorry, but uh, I got to be totally gone from here in five weeks. Are you kidding, Ryan? I mean, yeah. after all that work, you and your brother, I, I know, put a lot of thought and a lot of work into that process. And then suddenly he's going to be gone in five weeks. What do you, what do you do about that? Well, that's, that's where we, we, we're, where's Buckles. I mean, you know, that's, that's what the job was all about and like it or not. Uh, so we were in a position that we had to basically figure two angles here, but one that would take him completely out of the territory for good. And a second angle that potentially might return him with more strength than what he had when he left the territory. So this was kind of like the ultimate test for a booker. And this challenge is going to reveal just what Rob and I are made of and, uh, and where we are in this learning to be booker process, you know. So at the same time, it was a test to see if an angle could be created that could remove a top star for good while also setting him up for return if that became possible for him to come back. So, you know, wow, it was, it was a, quite a dilemma for a booker. So that's where one of the best angles ever done in Southeastern started. I mean, uh, Rob and I really sat down and we put on those hats and uh, here's kind of what happens here. And, you know, I'm going to break this angle down and, uh, you know, uh, and that's why I call this as anatomy of an angle. So it was the week after Ronnie Garvin put up his $12,000 against Bob Armstrong's Cadillac. And it was the actually the week that Armstrong wrestled the Stomper for the first time ever in Southeastern wrestling. That's where we had to start doing something to get this done. So I'm going to call this angle the Ronnie Garvin babyface turn. We only had four weeks to turn him babyface and get him sent out of the territory. Wow. <laughs> it's, yeah. like, it's like, a, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. And it's, it's, it was just, it was all about what bookers were and were the job they had. So the angle began on TV on Saturday, February 26, 1977. And it was the first Saturday uh, Garvin uh, told us he was leaving. After he told us on Monday, the following Saturday, we started an angle. It began with Don Carson approaching Garvin in a personality profile and asking Garvin if he could become his manager. And Garvin turned him down. It was as simple as that. For the next two weeks afterward. Garvin and Carson, they kept building this heat between the two of them. Uh, they were getting involved in each other's matches, uh, just little things. But uh, the angle is just uh, slowly developing. So in the last Studcast main event, Garvin caused the Stomper to lose the belt to Armstrong. Mm-hmm. In the process, Garvin left Don Carson laying in the ring. He turned babyface on that afternoon of Sunday, March 5th, <laughs> the last Studcast. Right. So, you know, two weeks earlier, he's a bona fide heel. And, and now two weeks later, he's a top babyface. And when he turns, it's a fantastic turn. I mean, he really got over. The angle got over. So later in this studcast, we're going to be discussing Southeastern's first time ever heel versus heel cage match. 
uh, that's going to be the subject matter of today, basically. And that match is going to end up in a finish that sets the stage for the end of Ronnie Garvin and Southeastern Wrestling. Or will it be the end of Ronnie Garvin's Southeastern career? (laughs) All right, Ron. Don't tell us that you are not going to tell us what happened to Ronnie Garvin in the next couple of weeks before he disappears. (laughs) Well, you ought to know me about well enough now, Dave. You know, whether I can keep my mouth shut or not. Yeah, I figured as much. Okay. <laughs> you know, a good booker, a wrestler, or an owner, they never let anyone know what's going to happen. Right. <laughs> That's why they call it kayfabe, Dave. Okay. I hate kayfabe, whatever that is. So if this is today's training, if it's over, then we got to be, we got to be going, we're going to hear something about what happens to Ronnie Garvin in the heel versus heel match today right but really i think it was more heel versus fan favorite whether he was a babyface or not yes well yes we are absolutely going to hear about that match today and we're going to not only hear what happens in that cage match Mm -hmm. but the next week's main event we're going to talk about that briefly that's going to be one of the most important matches in southeastern history all right well let's get right to that one i want to hear more about that what was the entire card for the week of march 12th 1977, because I got a feeling that had something to do with it, too. Okay. All right. Well, we'll pull up old Waffle House there just a little bit, Dave. Okay. You okay. Know, I mean, uh, you know, you got to slow him down a little bit. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, after seeing Andre eat, man, it's pretty hard to slow down some people at Waffle House. And since you're old horses that, you know, slow him down a little bit. So we're going to take a look <laughs> at the, We're going to get to that main event. Okay. But uh, let's start out by just uh, – Tell everybody what the card was on Sunday, March 12, 77 in the Coliseum. And uh, one of the rare events in wrestling happened that day in Southeastern. And so let's begin with the first match of the day. Dick Steinborn wrestled against George McCrary, opened the card. And a great young baby face, Ricky Gibson faced uh, Rip Smith in uh, what was a pure wrestling match. I love to have those every once in a while. And this time it's going to be the second match on the card. Ron Wright's going to face off with David Schultz on this card. And a great match is coming up in the fourth of the match of the card with Jimmy Golden versus Bob Orton Jr. I knew when I booked this match that these guys, wow, I, I couldn't imagine how good this was going to be. Then there was a huge six-man tag on this card. Me and Rob and Bob Armstrong are going to wrestle against the Bond Steigers and Norvell Austin. And then the main event is an NWA non-sanctioned lights out cage match between Ronnie Garvin and the Mongolian Stomper managed by Don Carson. There it is. That is there it is, Ron, the Garvin and Mongolian Stomper cage match. That's the match you said earlier in the today's training segment that we would be hearing about in this studcast. So how did that end? Well, 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 now, wait a minute. Well, wait, 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 Dave. You, you got to bring that horse in again, man. You know, we, we ain't going to jump right there to the to the results of this. Let's talk well, about the TV. You no, know, this this little Waffle House down a little bit. <laughs> you know, rein him in a little bit. And uh, let's get to the TV of Saturday, March 11th. And we'll work our way toward that, that main eventer. So. All right, so you you kind of driving me crazy with this angle. All right, so what happened on the TV? Tell me that on the TV on the day before the cage match. I know okay. you can do that. There you go, Dave. We got our horses lined up now, man. That's good. So the show opened up with less 
obviously, as they're done every week, uh, running down the cart, and the cameras are on the tight shot. And then when that camera's back away, there's Ron Wright sitting with him at the desk this time. And that giant screen behind the two of them is a still shot of Ron Wright, and he's leaning over his brother Don. It was at the end of the match the Sunday before against Bob Orton Jr. with his brother wrestled Bob Orton Jr. So Les asked Ron to tell fans what they were looking at on the big screen there. And Ron was obviously upset, you know, and he started telling what had happened to his brother the last Sunday in the Coliseum. Les kind of just jumped right in and said, you know, uh, uh, Bill Kincaid, who was the director, he said, Bill, would you please back up that tape and let's roll it from the beginning. And let's, you know, take the still shot and put it into action. So that's what happened. And Ron picked up on the video right away where Bob Orton and Don Wright, Bob Orton had Ron's brother in his backbreaker. And the bell was ringing when it's when this tape starts. And uh, Ron brought to everybody's attention the fact the match was over. Obviously, you could hear the bell ringing. You could see the, the referee patting Orton on the back. And Orton just kept punishing his brother. And then he also, Ron, brought attention to the way that Orton dropped his helpless brother from the backbreaker head first onto the mat. Ron said, you know, that uh, when he came to TV that day and he lived up there in Kingsport, and so did his brother in the Tri-Cities area in Tennessee, and about a 100-mile trip, he said he went by Donnie's house and he said Donnie was still having a problem standing on his feet six days after he'd been dropped on his head. And uh, so he told Les that he'd give just about anything. You know how Ron was. I'd give about anything right now if I had a match with that Bob Orton Jr. <laughs> you know, and uh, so, you know, but Les right away reminded him, said, well, you're on the card, uh, Ron, but you're wrestling against David Schultz. And about that time, man, out pops Bob Orton Jr. He's going to be wrestling in the first match, but instead of coming to get to the ring, he goes to the set. And, uh, and he tells Ron Wright, he starts right into old Ron, and he says, you know, I heard about a legendary hillbilly in this part of the country that was supposed to be pretty tough. He goes, mm. uh, and then he added, you know, but but it can't be you they're talking about, not looking at you. That ain't the guy. You ain't the guy, are you? And he said, obviously, your brother ain't the guy. I dropped him on his head last week. Damn near killed him. <laughs> wow. So, uh, so Ron got mad. Ron's already mad. Now he's been insulted. And boy, he jumps up and uh, Orton just walks onto the ring. You know, very calmly, Orton had a real calm exterior, man. It, you had to do a lot to get him riled up. So Ron Wright jumps up and Orton just kind of walks onto the ring like, you know, hey, do whatever you're going to do. And Les tries to calm Ron right down. In fact, he says, Ron, would you stay with me here at the set? Uh, you know, the, this guy's going to be wrestling, and, and would you stay here and we you can watch the match with him? So, you know, Ron, Ron agrees. Mm -hmm. So Orton, he don't take long, man. He gets that opponent, his opponent that day, and he, he finishes him off, man, quick-like with his backbreaker. And he gets the submission, and Ron's talking about what he's doing, and then he sees him go for the backbreaker. And, uh, and once he gets this kid up on his back on TV, he gets the submission and they start ringing the bell and the referees tapping him on the shoulder and tapping him on the back. It's all over. But he's refusing to turn the guy loose, just like he had done with Ron's brother uh, the Sunday before in the Coliseum. And uh, Ron was at the set. Well, he's just getting really mad now. This is hey, this guy's ridiculous. 
So then Orton still got the guy on his shoulders, and he turns around, and the camera's over there by Ron Wright and Les, and they get it the perfect shot. He turns around, and he looks right straight at Ron Wright, and he smiles like, hey, look at this. You know, and oh, boy, that was uh, it. Uh, uh. <laughs> so Les tries to stop Ron, but there's no stopping Ron. <laughs> Here he goes. He goes for the ring, and uh, Orton sees him coming, and he drops the wrestler on his head as he, I guess he was going to do all the wrestlers. And then a uh, ripe split under the ropes, man, and up in the ring, and he was going to go after Orton, and Orton just calmly stepped out on the far side of the ring, and, uh, you know, and the referee got in front of Ron to back him off, and Orton just kind of calmly went into Studio B, where there's going to be the first interview. Like, there's no big deal to this. I'm not concerned, and he wasn't. So Ron Wright was about to leave the studio. He's going back, you know, he's been there for a whole segment, longer than he was expected to be there. And Jimmy Golden is wrestling Bob Orton Jr., and he comes to the set to make the interview. And when he sees Ron there, he stops him, and he brings him back to the set with him. So Jimmy starts the interview. You've got Bob Orton Jr. in one studio. You've got Jimmy and Ron Wright in the other studio. And Jimmy starts the interview, and he began the interview. By telling Ron that I saw what happened last Sunday. I watched the match between Bob Orton Jr. and your brother. And he says, I know you're worried about your brother. He said, I watched him drop him on his head and I thought he broke his neck. And then he asked Ron right there. He says, how would you like to swap opponents tomorrow? I'm supposed to wrestle Bob Orton Jr. Oh. And you're supposed to wrestle David Schultz. Right. How would you like to wrestle Bob Orton Jr. tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> so, so Bob Orton Jr. is in the other studio. Now he can see him and he can hear what they're talking about. And he interrupts and he, he goes, wait, wait, wait just a second. He goes, what kind of wrestling company allows their wrestlers to choose who they want to wrestle? You know, he says, I, I don't care which, which one of you two hillbillies want me. I'm man <laughs> enough to beat both of you at the same time. So Les sees a little opening there, and he jumps right in. Les was really sharp, and he and he goes, "Hey, if that's the case, uh, Bob, would you uh, allow uh, allow them to swap opponents? Would you be willing to wrestle Ron Wright tomorrow?" And Orton's a really cocky guy, man, and he and he goes, "Absolutely, I'd be very glad to drop two hillbilly brothers on their heads back to back." And he added, you know, and, and he says, in Texas, where I come from, uh, that's kids' fun. Hurting two hillbillies in one week, that's kids' fun. He said, I'll call my dad and brag about this one as soon as the show's over. <laughs> so, so Ron jumped in. Ron was mad anyway, man. It's his, 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 his turn. You know, so he says, okay, Les, okay, Les. And, you know, he got his deal. You know, it's me against that punk from Texas. You know, and he goes up. Uh, and, and all of you, and he talks to the studio audience. He says, all of you out there knows what's going to happen to that boy tomorrow. And boy, the crowd popped before he could even say it. You know? And then he had to throw it in. He's going to get a good old Tennessee dog whooping. There it is, you know? ladies. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That gets the TV off to a pretty dang good start right there. All right. What's next, Ron? Well, the second segment begins with the Bond Stigers in Norville, Austin. They come to the set. And they watched the match that Rob and I had with them on the prior Sunday. 
And we had told them uh, on the week on the last studcast that, that you know we're gonna we're gonna make you bleed by golly and we're going to get your belts. And the brothers were both patched up because we kept our promise. Where they were pretty bloody when they left the ring, and they were very upset about the loss of the belts and the fact that they had bled so badly in the match. And they were happy to be joined by the they called him the great Norvell Austin. The next day, that's going to be getting in the ring with us. And we're going to be taking on the cheating karate king, Bob Armstrong, and the weak Fuller brothers in the six-man <laughs> tag. <laughs> the, cheating, the cheating Bob Armstrong. So, uh, so they vowed to get their belts back in an upcoming return match, which they had scheduled in uh, Johnson City for three days after this TV. And just the mention of that upcoming championship match on the Johnson City TV station, which they're seeing at the same time, it was going to fill that building, man, and it did. Gosh, the following Tuesday night in Johnson City, they stopped selling tickets an hour before starting time. I don't know how many people we could have put in that building if it had been big enough. Just the mention of it, it was pretty amazing what was going on back in those days. So then the three of them left the set, and they went to the ring. They had a, We had a six-man tag in the second match, which is a really good thing to have on your program every once in a while. They wrestled against Rip Smith, the good guy, a uh, good talent, Rick Connors and DeVoy Brunson, and they took care of him pretty darn quick. You know, once the match was over, me and Rob and Bob Armstrong, we went out to take the second interview. And uh, fans went crazy as soon as we entered the studio. Bob was wearing his newly won Southeastern belt that he had won the Sunday before uh, with the help of Ronnie Garvin, by the way. And Les presented Rob and I the tag team belts because we won that match the Sunday before, but the Von Steigers, they were running from the ring. They just took the belts and went to the dressing room. There was a no DQ match. They counted them out. They raised our hand. We were the champions, but they had the belts. So by the time we get to Saturday, Les standing there with the belts and he says, Ron, Rob, here's your, here's your Southeastern championship belts. So, uh, you know, it was a nice presentation. The audience was really, uh, they, they were really enjoying it. They got a big standing ovation. And uh, all three of us stood there with our belts on. And we made the interview about what we're going to do the Germans in Norvell Austin the next day. Wow. Okay. Hey, that's a, that's a lot happening in this story. Let's take a break here. This is a good time to do that. We'll come back. And the story continues on this Studcast in moments right here. Stay tuned. Ron Fuller is known worldwide as a great storyteller, especially when it comes to wrestling. However, his greatest story has now become a novel. Brutus has more than 45 star reviews on Amazon.com. Look for it under Brutus Novel. See them for yourself and find out how readers react to the roller coaster terror ride of Brutus. An African lion is on the loose in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Now there's a plot. From the mind of Ron Fuller comes Brutus. This amazing novel came from a one-night dream and two years of writing to piece it together. Get it now at Amazon.com Brutus Novel or the special autograph copy at TNStud.com and click Stud Store. Many of the reviews compare Brutus to one of the greatest books and movies of all time, Jaws. Some reviewers say it's better than Jaws. There's nothing like it. Imagine what a specially autographed novel like this would mean to your family if it becomes a movie. Amazon.com, Brutus Novel, or TNStud.com. 
click stud store for the autographed copy. Experience the stud in a totally different way. It's one of the best-selling old-school video collections of all time, and it comes from the Lost Territory, Southeastern Continental Wrestling. It features more than 60 stars from two of the greatest territories ever, from Hulk Hogan's first-ever encounter with Andre the Giant in 1978 to Ric Flair world title matches in the 80s. This five-DVD pack is loaded with history. Get it now at TNStud.com. Click Stud Store. Only $39.99, and that includes shipping. 60-plus. Plus matches, over 12 hours of wrestling history with stars from the Armstrongs to Arn and Mr. Olympia, the fantastic stud stable of Fuller's Golden, the Lord Humongous, Assassin, Mr. Wrestling 2, Austin Idol, Tommy Wildfire Rich and Johnny Rich, Kevin Sullivan and his New Guinea Headhunters, Dr. Tom Pritchard, Dutch Mantel, the Dirty White Boy, and far too many others to name. TNstud.com, click stud store, get yours for 39 99 and that includes shipping. If you've never purchased videos before or if you're a collector, there has never been an offer like this. It's the best deal in wrestling. Hey everybody, welcome back in. David Summers here with the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller on another superb studcast. As the story continues, don't forget tnstud.com. It's a great place to peruse the photos while the storyteller continues with the story. And here's our man, Ron. All right, Ron, where were we? What's up next? Well, we're at the personality profile in the middle of the show. And uh, this one's pre-recorded. And we did it because Carson's going to be on it with the Stomper. And we didn't want the studio crowd booing him and getting so loud that he, he would drown him out. So we pre-recorded it uh, so that we could everybody could hear exactly what Carson had to say. Carson sits down in one of those big old chairs, he and Les, and the big chairs for the personality profile, and the stomper just paces back and forth behind Carson. He's lost his belt. He's very, very unhappy. Carson is going to watch how it happened and what happened last week that made Ronnie Garvin come to the ring. What went on that changed everything as far as Carson and Ronnie Garvin was, and it's going to make Carson. Ronnie Garvin, a huge baby face. So Don Carson watched the video and everything as usual that happened the Sunday before. And he always, as Don did, had his own slant to everything that was happening on the screen. You know, it ain't what you see. It's what I tell you you're seeing. And he began very quietly with this video, you know, while it was showing all the illegal things he was doing. So the video was fantastic. The match was fantastic. So it showed Carson enter the ring, and this is a no-DQ match. He entered the ring, uh, and the referee tried to stop him. But since it was a no-DQ match, Don Carson just knocked the referee down. It's like, hey, you know, you you got nothing. You can't do anything to keep me from doing what I'm going to do. So Bob Armstrong was over in the corner, man. He's throwing those big old right-hand bombs that he got to be doing in 1977. Blasting Stomper, and Stomper's just hanging on the ropes, trapped in the corner. He can't go anywhere. So Bob never saw Carson get into the ring, and it showed Carson take his black glove from under his sport coat, put it on. There's no big hurry about it. You know, he's behind Armstrong, and he's pretty sure that Armstrong ain't going to keep blasting his Stomper. So he put his glove on, he loaded her up, and then he went over and then nailed Bob in the back of the head, and Bob went down face first. And Carson pushed Stomper, 
over hanging in the corner, pushed him over on the top of Bob. And while all this is going on, Les is saying, what are you doing there, Don? What are you doing there? What's that you got on your, what's on your hand? And Don's just saying, oh, I, you know, there's a black thing. I don't know. My arm's been real bad lately. You know, I got off, you know, my veins are bad. He had all these horrible excuses about what's going on and he denying all of it. And uh, so, you know, let's point it out piece by piece. But even the part where he removed the glove and he put it back under his coat, even denied that, you know, like, oh, that didn't really happen. I never had a glove. So then his attitude changed dramatically in the middle of this profile. As soon as Ronnie Garvin appears in this profile, then Don Carson explodes, man. And he starts screaming right away. The old Les Thatcher, you don't tell me who that is sneaking into the ring. Where does he belong? He does not belong there, does he? And Carson, you know, was had his back to Garvin at this point in the video, and he was putting on his glove when Garvin gets to the ring. And so when he turns around, man, he turns right into Ronnie Garvin. So even though the segment now is pre-recorded, when we show it back live in the studio, those people pop. You know, when when Garvin hit hit, hit Carson, uh, the studio popped just like they were watching it live. And, you know, it wasn't nowhere near the volume of the 5,000 people in the Coliseum, the way they popped. But I could only imagine the explosion, the cheers uh, that was occurring in homes all across the southeastern United States who was seeing this for the first time. So Carson began to scream again. Les Thatcher, as he always started. Is that man not Ronnie Garvin? So, you know, Les very calmly said, uh, yeah, it certainly is. And Carson continued as if he's a lawyer, man. He, he's beginning to get the feel of the, oh, I'm enjoying this. You know, and then he says, uh, but then tell me why he's there and in a place where he's got no business being. So mm. Les fired back. Well, Don, why are you in a place where you got no business being? <laughs> <laughs> Studio popped on that one. <laughs> so, and then about that time in the video, Garvin grabs up the begging Carson man who's trapped in the corner now, and he pile drives him. And uh, there's another pop from the studio there, like, wow, oh, this is great. I remember they, all of them were probably at the matches, but they love seeing it back. So Carson screamed out again as soon as he got pile drive. He goes, Les Thatcher, did you see what he did to me? And Les says very calmly, he says, uh, I certainly did. And and it looks like he's leaving the ring. And, and Garvin was leaving the ring, or he thought he was leaving the ring. And he walks past the stomper who's laying on top of Bob Armstrong. Uh. Then the video shows Garvin get out on the apron in the ring. And he's about to jump to the floor, and then he hesitates. Uh. And then he looks around at the crowd who's just, oh, in the video, it, the crowd is just unbelievable. They're all just roaring, man. They are so into him. They, you know, and they're entirely on his side at this point. So Garvin, instead of leaving, he points up to that top rope Uh-oh. And, uh, above where the stomper and Armstrong's laying down there. And boy, yeah. that crowd figures it out. Wow. He's going to do it. So Don Carson screams almost as loud as the crowd in the, in the video. Les Thatcher, watch what Ronnie Garvin's going to do now and tell me that that's legal. <laughs> Garvin. He jumps up on the top rope and he slowly spreads his arms out there, man. And he sails off that top rope and he lands on the back of Stomper's neck with a tremendous knee drop, man. 
And Les says very calmly, he goes, uh, it's a no DQ match, Don. He goes, uh, any, any, <laughs> he's not doing anything more illegal than what you've done up to this point, is he? And Carson goes on, this is like, hey, if you don't say what he wants to hear, he just ignores it. And he goes, no, Lester Archer, watch what he does next. He's putting Bob Armstrong on top of my stomper. So let's ask, uh, do you mean the same way you put the stomper on top of Bob Armstrong a couple <laughs> minutes earlier? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, Don's getting frustrated now. Oh, this ain't going good. Thatcher, <laughs> you know, shut up. So, by that time, the refs counted out the stomper, and he was given the Southeastern belt to the new champion, Bob Armstrong. The studio audience was celebrating just like they had never seen it. They were about to try to sound as loud as that 5,000 in the Coliseum, but they couldn't get nearly like that. So I could, again, imagine only what they were thinking at homes across the Southeast, how much they enjoyed this. So Stomper, he's mad now. So he's been pacing back and forth. And as soon as we get to this point, Carson, uh, you know, Armstrong has been presented his belt. And he stops and he bends over and Carson's sitting in the chair and he puts his head right beside Carson's head because he knows the cameras got on Carson. And he makes this look into the camera that, wow, I'm up in this. I'm like, whoa, he's mad. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that. so both of them, uh, Carson and the Stomper are staring into this camera and Les, uh, you know, Carson finishes the interview and he says, Les Thatcher. Tomorrow in the Coliseum, there's going to be a much more dangerous match than the one we just watched. He said it's going to be an NWA non-sanctioned lights-out cage match between my stomper and Ronnie Garvin. He said, I guarantee you, Les Thatcher, that Ronnie Garvin will not walk away from that cage when it's all over tomorrow. <laughs> and, and then he just kept going, but, you know, tomorrow, my stomper, We'll do things to Ronnie Garvin that fans in this part of the country have never seen done to a wrestler. He go, we will see you tomorrow, Les Thatcher. And they ended the profile. One of the best, I thought, in the history of Southeastern. So Stomper and Carson, all of a sudden, they've been on this pre-recorded thing. And uh, the crowd has already been making fun of them and really enjoying this. And all of a sudden, they're in the next match. So they just appear from the back, pop right into the studio, and the fans just continue and just booing like crazy. And and it brought me back when I watched this. To I remember when the when Stomper first arrived that the fans wouldn't even boo him. They were scared of him, so scared of him. But at this point, less than three months later, they ain't afraid of him anymore, man. They are just into the fact that Ronnie Garvin has kicked his butt, right? So, man, they really popped. So it, it didn't affect the Stomper, though. He didn't care. He just went out there and destroyed the two opponents that he had in the ring, left them both bleeding as usual, pinned them on one on top of another, and then uh, Ronnie Garvin entered the studio for the last match. I'd never heard a reception like that. When Garvin came in, as loudly as they booed Carson and Stomper, they roared for Ronnie Garvin. He was really over. I'd never heard a babyface uh, get that louder reception uh, in his first time being seen after he turned babyface. Fans just jumped up on their feet. They never sat down during his entire match. They never stopped clapping. 
and he just pulverized his opponent. He jumped off the top rope on him, not once, but twice in his throat, and he pinned him, and then he went to the set for the last interview of the show. And his interviews just kept getting better and better. And, you know, after he watched this personality profile, uh, when Carson's job, he watched it from the dressing room. Obviously, there was cameras back there, and there were monitors there. And uh, so, you know, and then he'd gone to the ring and he got his adrenaline going really good before he did the interview. And boy, Ronnie Garvin absolutely rocked that studio that day. I couldn't wait after watching the interview to see what the next day's crowd was going to be. And maybe the biggest yet in Southeastern. Man, that's one hell of a TV show, Ron. Tell us what happened the next day in the Coliseum. And then let's get an idea of what the attendance figure was, because I bet that was pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah, all right, so, uh, you know, let's let's cover the next day's uh, results. The opening match, obviously, uh, Dick Steinborn's wrestling George McCrary, and uh, Dick Steinborn's a uh, uh, much greater talent than George McCrary is, and Steinborn got to win the first match. Ricky Gibson, that I talked about being a great young star, actually he's the brother, older brother of Robert Gibson, who of rock and roll fame, that, you know, is still doing it today. You know, they, he had a fantastic clean wrestling match with Rip Smith. They went 20 minutes uh, without a winner. I watched the match, and the fans literally gave him a standing ovation at the end of the match, and it kind of gave me goosebumps. It was like a testament to how far Southeastern had come in less than three years. When I got there, all they wanted to see was blood and guts, and they watched a 20-minute pure wrestling match and they loved it just as much as the old blood and guts. It was really, really telling me that we had really come a long way. Uh, there was a change in the card on TV from the day before, obviously. And Jimmy Golden gave his spot to wrestle uh, Bob Orton Jr. to Ron Wright. And Jimmy was now in the third match against David Schultz. And he beat David Schultz. Ron Wright and Bob Orton Jr. had a violent match. The type that Ron Wright was famous for. You know, and uh, he didn't give Gordon any any different uh, option. He didn't give him an option other than just uh, brawling with him. And it turned out that Orton Jr. was just as capable of that type of match as Wright was. Orton Jr. won this match with his backbreaker, and he dropped Ron Wright on his head after the bell rang. He got him a, a quality win over a big name in Knoxville. Six man tag that followed was absolutely crazy. Uh, Bob and Rob and I, uh, we end up pinning Norvell Austin uh, and the Ron Steiger brothers, obviously, was his partner. And after the match was over, we had a fight that lasted longer probably than the match did. So Bob and I would have a different partner. We're going to wrestle him again the following Sunday, the same three guys, but Rob's not going to be with us. We're going to have Mike Stallings, who hadn't been there since Thanksgiving night, 1976. So we got a the guy that was over pretty good coming back in the next show. And the NWA non-sanctioned lights-out match was next. This match was a look into the future of Southeastern wrestling. I'll tell you, two fantastic talents in the sport going head-to-head. Uh, really, really big-time wrestling here. So before the cage was locked and the, and the match began, the two referees came to the ring. They exchanged keys to make sure they both had a key to the cage door. Each one had their own key. And the one on the inside of the cage locked the door. The contestants were inside the ring. He locked the door. The second one checked the door to make sure that it was secure and that it was locked. 
And he went back to the back of the Colosseum and set up on a platform that had a single seat for him as a second referee in case something in this cage match happened. He had a key as well. So the lights in the Colosseum went black for 10 seconds, which is a, you know, NWA non-section rule. Hmm. It was one of the most dramatic things about these lights out matches. And it became a precursor to my hockey intros 12 years later, man. I got the idea from these lights out matches as a way to start my hockey games uh, 12 years later when I changed sports. So when the lights came back on, Phil Rainey was standing outside the cage. He made the announcement that the lights being turned off signified that this match was not sanctioned by the National Wrestling Alliance. The building was electric. The people were standing up. It was like, wow, this is going to be unreal. The bell was rung and all hell broke loose. It was unreal. So Garvin more than held his held his own in this match against the Stomper. You know, the Stomper was, in my opinion, he might have been the greatest monster heel of his time. You know, he just had that look. He was he he was a monster, a tremendous heel. Both guys end up bloody in this match. The referee gets pushed and he gets shoved and he gets hit two or three times. But he always managed to get back on his feet. Second referee stayed back on the platform. Finally, almost 30 minutes into this match, man, which was a ferocious one, the referee, a Mongolian stomper, snatched the referee and he ran him across the ring and threw him face first into the cage. Obviously, that referee was done. So Garvin grabbed Stomper and he pile-drived him. He pile-drived him twice. And then he went up onto the top of the cage to jump off in his throat. Now, the second referee was down by the cage at this point. He was trying to unlock the cage so that he could get in and take the place of the second referee at the very least. Don Carson obviously was standing right over the top of him while he's trying to unlock the cage. And Don can't wait on that to happen. He just nails the second referee, takes the keys, and he unlocks the cage himself. And then he waves toward the back of the Coliseum for somebody to come. Carbon's on the top of the cage, and boy, he sails off the top of that cage. And uh, rather than being just on the top rope, he goes up to the top of the cage itself so he can get another three feet higher than he (laughs) usually jumps from, you know. And he landed with that knee, man, firmly across the throat of the stomper. The crowd, man, they were already roaring. But when that happened, gosh, the roof blew off that place. Garvin went to get the first ref to count out the stomper. And uh, Carson was entering the cage where the second ref was laying. You know, Carson now was inside. So Carson got in. He pulled out his black glove from under his sport coat. Garvin's got his back to him. He doesn't see him there. And Garvin's trying to get this referee that's still the one in the ring to try to get him over there to where he can count the stomper out because he's got him finished. And uh, so Carson loads his glove, and he's he's a, he's behind Garvin, and obviously uh, he thinks Garvin doesn't see he's coming. So the ref gets down, and he's given the, the three count. And he gets to the two count, and Garson throws this big punch at the back of Ronnie Garvin's head and Ronnie rolled out of the way, and he hit Stomper right in the face uh-oh, uh-oh. with his loaded glove. Wow. <laughs> so, wow, what a pop that was. I mean, they, that place went crazy then. And then Garvin backed Carson into a corner. 
You know, and uh, Bob Wharton Jr. arrived at ringside at this point. Garvin nailed Carson, and uh, he was removing his glove, and he was putting it on. I guess he was going to hit Carson with his own glove. And uh, Orton, uh, you know, got through the cage, into the door. And then when he came into the door, he turned around and he locked the door behind him. So now uh, Garvin's in the ring with Bob Orton Jr., the Mongolian Stomper, and Don Carson. <laughs> so there was so much noise in that building. The fans, they couldn't even warn Garvin about what was happening, that uh, Orton had come into the ring. Uh, you know, it was just, it was bedlam, total bedlam. And Garvin was loading his glove when Bob Orton Jr. nailed him from behind. Orton took the glove off, <laughs> put it on his hand, and loaded it. And as Garvin was getting to his feet after he'd been hit from behind, and he turned around and Bob Orton hit him with Carson's loaded glove. That was the knockout blow of the day, man. Down Ronnie went. It was all them from there on. Carson got onto his feet. Stomper got back up on his feet. Uh, Orton was wearing the glove. Uh, Carson and Stomper helped get Ronnie Garvin. He was unconscious. They lifted him up and put him on top of Bob Orton Jr.'s shoulders, man, so that he could back break him really good. And uh, well, once Gordon got him on his shoulders, he started jumping in the air and doing that little special punishment to him. And uh, boy, the fans were in that building were going crazy. They they started surging from ringside, coming from downstairs to the floor. They started coming to the cage. So Bob Armstrong finally got the cage open, but the second referee got him into the cage. First referee went over, unlocked it. Bob got into the cage. And then uh, when he got in the ring, Stomper and Carson tried to stop him from getting to Orton. Orton still had Ronnie on his shoulders, man, was still backbreaking him. And Bob was fighting those guys, and he fought like a maniac. And then finally, Carson went down, Stomper went down, Bob was about to get to Orton, and Orton dropped Garvin right on his head, just like he normally did. The Mongolian Stomper, Don Carson, Bob Orton Jr., they left the cage. And when they did, they disappeared into a gang of policemen. And that gang of policemen disappeared into a mob of fans between wow. them and the back of the building. Are you kidding, Ron? How did they get out of the crowd alive? Because I know how these crowds were. And, and how bad was Ronnie Garvin hurt? Well, policemen were really great there. They did a tremendous job. Uh, and, uh, you know, they got back without the heels got back without getting hurt. But, uh, me and Rob and Bob was already in the cage and Jimmy, we all had to go there. Ronnie was, Ronnie was out and uh, we got him, got him a little bit conscious and, and we helped him and carried him just basically carried him back to the back of into the dressing room. Wow. I have never heard anything like that before. Don't tell me you have something for the next week that will follow that match. How do you top it? Well, how about if if we bring them back uh, next week, a loser leaves Southeastern match, put Ronnie Garvin against Bob Orton Jr. All right. And then take them on TV and <laughs> tell all the fans the history between these two wrestlers, which makes this battle next week even more important once fans learn about why Ronnie Garvin hates Bob Orton Jr. Well, there you go. You never cease to amaze us, Ron. You're doing it again, and that's that's the Booker's hat. So how many fans were there for this crazy cage match? Well, this was another new Coliseum record, man, 55-50. 
you know, another Southeastern record, another Coliseum record for wrestling so far. It was big time. Everybody went away from there talking about what they saw that day. Oh, no doubt about it. And another great stud cast, Ron, after that cage match. I think it's time we take a cold drink. Let's chill for a second under the learning tree. Remind us again. Get us get us set up for the question once again, Ron. Well, this learning tree question comes from another podcast, oddly enough. It's called the, the Post Rhetoric Podcast. And they ask in this question, how do you recall all these 45-year-old shows in such detail? And that's a great question. And it's one I've been asked a few times before. It's a long time. 45 years is a long time. And I'm going to start from, from where it really starts with me and, uh, and why I have this ability to do it. It all begins with the fact that I'm a third-generation wrestler and a booker and an owner of several different wrestling companies. And I grew up in the wrestling business. I started watching wrestling matches when I was three years old and, uh, and remembering so many things from those matches. So I've always, since I was a little boy, been able to remember pretty much most anything that I saw concerning wrestling. You know, it's like, wow, it's like it just sticks in my memory bank, you know, and I know exactly when all of this started. And it started in the year of 1958, and I was 10 years old. And I went to see my father wrestle Mario Galento in Ladd Stadium in Mobile, Alabama. Wow. Everything about that night stuck in my mind. And I decided that night that that's what I wanted to do when I grew up and I wanted to become a wrestler. So I saw one of the largest crowds in the Southern wrestling history, estimated at 40,000. Uh, show up in this football stadium in Mobile, Alabama. Wow. And I remember my mom walking, my brother and I, I'm 10, Rob was nine. She walked us across the football field to the opposite side of the, the football field where the other grandstand was. And we walked about halfway up to the top of that grandstand. And I remember when I turned around and I saw that mass of humanity there to see my father. It affected me the rest of my life. It was wow. like a, it was a moment that I will never forget. Well, then we, when we bent back across that field and we, we had to stand behind the thousands of people that the one side of that stadium, uh, it held uh, probably 35,000 people, I would say. It was totally sold out. So a lot of those fans had come down on the field itself and there was a probably 3,000 ringside seats on that field. And we were way in the back there, could barely see anything of what was happening, except I got these occasional views of my dad and Mario Glento, and they were covered in blood. I mean, wow, I'd never seen bleeding like that. Uh, so much blood that the few people that even stayed, the, the first people in the first three rows, there was blood flying into the first three rows and people got up and left those first three rows because they couldn't take it. I wow. mean, it was, it was, it was horrible. And I wouldn't find out for years, Dave, that in that match, every punch they threw was a hard way. And I remember my father had a broken nose. He had two black eyes and uh, they were still shut closed two weeks after the match. I remember that uh, Mario Glento had 75 stitches in his face alone God. You know, from this match, you know. So I remember my mother 
had to drive my dad everywhere because he couldn't see two weeks. I also remember the first time that he tried to open one of his eyes and I caught him in the bathroom and me and Rob were just happened to walk by and he was, he reached up and he opened, he pulled his eye apart to see, I don't know what, what, what his eyeball looked like, I guess. And when he did blood squirted out of his eye under the mirror, good God, two weeks after this match. So many people, you know, ask me when I tell this story, how I watched this match and the results of it two weeks later. And uh, they asked me, weren't you traumatized? I mean, did, how did that affect you? I mean, how, how did you deal with that as a 10 year old? And, you know, I think it was because of the sport, the sport of wrestling was in my blood. I was destined to be a wrestler. And I realized that at 10 years old, that this is what I wanted to do. So to put this life changing event in perspective, uh, this match occurred 30 years before the biggest wrestling company in the world today ever, uh, you know, uh, had their first WrestleMania. Don't need to mention the name. Everybody knows who I'm talking about, okay? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mobile, Alabama had a population of less than 200,000. 40,000 of them show up at the stadium, which meant one out of five people living in that city was wow. at that match. Are you kidding? Well, you know, I mean, run the numbers. I mean, you know, they might not have all been from Mobile, but there was Uh, a great deal of people from that. So I'm going to give fans out there that say WrestleMania and WWE is the biggest thing that ever happened. I want to give you a fact here, okay? Nine WrestleManias have averaged the figure for nine WrestleManias with 17,114 fans per event. Hmm. That meant that less than half as many was in these WrestleMania events. It was in that one city of Alabama in 1958. Holy cow. Yeah. So let's jump back now to the question itself from this learning tree. And it was, how do I recall all these 45 year old shows in such detail? Well, I think I was really born with an innate ability to remember practically everything that I saw that had to do with wrestling, especially when it came to my own companies. I remember lots of things uh, in watching Georgia wrestling and companies that weren't mine when I was a kid. And I could tell you the finishes. I could tell you the ends of matches. You know, so my own companies, it was even easier for me. So if you were a booker in a territory, especially one where you had been in for years, you absolutely had to be able to recall every angle and every show, or you were going to repeat those angles again, which you couldn't do as a booker. That's a critical mistake as a booker if you're going to do the same angle again and again and again. A great booker is going to remember everything he ever did, and he's going to remember the finishes and the angles. So for a booker recalling everything, It's just part of the job. So actually, on top of the fact that that's the way it is, I actually have some help beyond just my memory. I got a friend out of Atlanta that Brian Lass introduced me to that sent me every card for Knoxville from the day Southeastern Wrestling had its first match to the day it closed. And on top of that, I have the actual TV formats from every show from the beginning of Southeastern all the way to the end of it. So I believe with all that support, and I'm very accurate about events and angles and everything I cover, 
I also am ready for the future because I got Bo James, who's a Southern wrestling historian, who's already compiling the cards for Southeastern Pensacola once I hit 1978. And I have all of the television formats for all those years from 78 to 88 as well. So uh, I appreciate your question, guys. I can understand your reason for questioning it, but I, I take pride in what I do. And probably few other people could accomplish what I do. No, you know? no. and I thank you guys at the Post Rhetoric Podcast for your support and for your question. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense because I thought, does Ron keep a personal diary of everything that freaking happened on all these shows? That's an amazing job in and of itself. All right, listen, on Facebook, simply like and follow Ron on either the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud page, or author Ron Fuller Welch, that page, and you're automatically friends with a legend. On Twitter and Instagram, it's the same on both. Ron Fuller Welch, Super Studcast number 38, is all about the entire history of southeastern Knoxville with Les Thatcher as a special guest, and it now has all three hours available for only $2.99 at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. It is the best deal in wrestling. Get your hands and eyes of the best old school wrestling DVDs in the world. Southeastern Continental, the Lost Territory, has five DVDs, 60 matches, multiple interviews, and outside the studio specials. 12 hours of them for only $39.99, and that includes shipping. Get your piece of wrestling history at tnstud.com. Click on Stud Store. Get that done right away. And Brutus is still rampaging through the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and setting records in the process. Don't miss the next Jaws at amazon.com. Brutus Novel or TNStud.com. Click on Stud Store and get your personally autographed copy today. All right, that's a lot. But where are we riding to next week, Ron, after an amazing week like this? Well, we're going to back into our today's training. We'll open it up with that. And we're going to the matches in Johnson City, Tennessee. I mentioned today uh, there's a tag team match for the championship belts on March 14th, 1977 in Johnson City, and uh, there's also a Southeastern Championship match that same night with Bob Armstrong against a Mongolian Stomper, and uh, there's going to be a very rare double title switch in a city that's a secondary city, not Knoxville, so, uh, you know, a historic event for them there, and we're back in the Coliseum on Sunday, March 19th. One of the Southeastern Wrestling's most historic matches is going to take place when Ronnie Garvin Faces is his old nemesis, Bob Borden Jr. We're going to learn the true history behind the really long feud between these two stars of the ring. And we'll find out the rest of the card. Uh, we'll talk about the TV that promoted it, the results of the matches, and the attendance uh, on that date. The Learning Tree next week is about how many stations were carrying Southeastern in 1977. Were their ratings as good as WBR in Knoxville? And was my relationship with those television station managers as strong as my relationship with the Knoxville TV station? So, Dave, I want to thank all our great listeners, obviously, and patrons for their support. And uh, and if you like to ride each week out there, folks, and 
please tell a friend or a family member about us so they can saddle up with us as well. So please take care of yourselves and others and make God bless us all. God bless you too, Ron. This is David Summers reminding you that Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.